This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Mile High Fi podcast. And today I have a co-host helping me out, Amberly Grant. So Amberly, how's it going today? Excellent. I am in Vancouver, Canada at the moment, hence why we are not sitting together in the same room. Cheers. And we actually just found out my partner gets his visa to the U.S. So pretty excited. That's really cool. And one thing, you know, Carl is normally the co-host, but he's out on assignment on a top secret location on a secret mission. And he's actually testing out a new product for his quick hardening line of building materials. So if you don't know what that is, check a couple episodes back. He, we, we have a new product line that we're, we're working on. So today we're going to be talking to Chen Chen Huo, and he's the co-founder of a bank startup called Nexus. That's great. And it's pretty interesting, but he's also in the restaurant business and he has a place called Mac. Macked. Is that right, Chen Chen? Yeah, that's correct. Cool. So this is a mac and cheese eatery and it's a fast, casual, built-your-own mac and cheese concept that empowers you to get creative. So we're going to talk about a few things today. Entrepreneurship, the five movement, mac and cheese, obviously. And I'm, I'm curious, Chen Chen. What's your go-to at Macked? What what would you get if you're just like, I can get whatever I want, which I guess you probably can. What do you order? Oh, uh, we have this we have this thing called the Meat Lover, and it is as meaty as it sounds. It's our normal helping of mac and cheese. Uh, and then topped with a four-ounce portion of uh, brisket and a four-ounce portion of short rib. So it's, it's funny as part of, you know, the food industry, there's a ton of tools and food tech options available, um, for, uh, for restaurant owners. One of them is the ability to literally send your food out to a facility, you know, in our case, about a hundred miles away where they burn it and they tell you the caloric content in a very scientific way. So, um, out of curiosity, we ended up sending our meat lover to this facility and the guy came back. And he was like, are you sure this is the portion that you serve your guests? And we're like, yeah, absolutely. And he's like, well, you realize this thing is clocking in at 3,700 calories, right? And I was like, oh, oh whoa. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and, then, and we decided obviously to keep those portions. And we started hearing from our guests that this was definitely something that you ordered and you get a takeout box before the meal even gets to you with the absolute intention of, you know, having this thing last you two to three meals. So um, a long answer to your question, but that's definitely my favorite thing. If given a, the option uh, to choose whatever I want. That's awesome. And then do you guys make the the brisket and short rib in-house? Yeah, everything's in-house. I mean, our prep process is insane, but um, I would say the only thing that we actually don't make in-house would probably be Start, I guess some of the some of the mixins. So just a brief overview as to how Mac works. You know, it's a build your own mac and cheese restaurant. Uh, you can choose. There's four steps to it. So you choose your cheese sauce. You choose your pasta base. Uh, the mixins, so stuff that actually get, gets cooked in with the pasta, and then toppings, like stuff that's actually placed on top afterwards. And then the entire thing hits a salamander, which is an industrial broiler. So. Um, yeah, I, we make everything in-house. Some of our mix-ins are just frozen vegetables that just get mixed in. Uh, but yeah, the brisket and the short rib are, no, I think the brisket's like slow cooked for um, something along the lines of half a day and the short rib is marinated and, and, and thrown into the oven as well. That's awesome. We could talk about that all day long. And I literally, funny enough, like I have like ideas of things to mix in with mac and cheese independent from like our conversation. And I, when I was doing research for this episode, I was like, holy shit, this guy has a Mac. Like it's the exact thing that I was writing on here. So pretty amazing. Amberly, do you have any follow-up questions about Mac and cheese? 
Well, I guess my first question is, did you eat the entire portion in one sitting or were you a takeout person as well or you do it in two? Absolutely a takeout person. Absolutely. I I don't know how often my body could handle the entire the entire portion of one sitting. Um, and you know, so back in the day, we've actually talked about doing something like a, like a challenge. So I, I'm based out of San Francisco, and there there are a, a few challenges were really in a few years ago. So we there was like this you know this pho restaurant, this Vietnamese noodle soup restaurant that had like the biggest pho west of the Mississippi or something. And you finished it in one. They would give you your meal free and then a t-shirt. So we joked about doing this meal as a challenge as well, but I don't know. 3,700 calories isn't something to scoff at for a 45 minute experience. Um, I do have, I do have to say, so, um, I, I did end up selling the restaurant, um, earlier last year. Um, so it's, you know, for better or for worse, no longer part of my daily repertoire of, of eating behavior. Um, but. No, I have never finished that in once. Uh, good for you. And Thank I think you. it's a very American thing to have eating contests. I don't know this as a Canadian thing. Um, Canadians, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure there's like some fair that has this, but this is a very American thing in my mind. I cannot fathom like yeah. taking my day and eating thousands of calories and being like cool with it. <laughs> and as an American, I'm thinking, I would like to try to eat the brisket, short rib, mac and cheese. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've had, I, I make brisket every now and then, and there's a good chance I've had like, you know, several thousand calories in a sitting. I mean, it's so cal like uh, calorically dense with all the mm-hmm. fat in there. So anyway, well, we, yeah. we're going to talk about five. We're going to talk about entrepreneurship as well. And there's a cool intersection between the two areas, but I think a lot of times we run past each other and we think we have different priorities, but a lot of times there is quite a bit of an overlap. So Amberly, I'm going to let you um, talk about how you met Chen Chen at Economy. So why don't you get into that and we'll dive into the relationship of, um, I guess, Phi economy and then how Chen Chen ended up there too. So go ahead. Okay. I did. So at economy, if you guys don't know, this is the party for five people in Cincinnati, Ohio in March. Uh, and I do take issue with the, uh, time of year. It is freezing. Come on. Uh, let's do this in the summertime. I know schools, you know, got classes and stuff. So I guess this is the only time it works. Um, I forgive you, Diana. So I was at Economy this year and they have breakout sessions. So I think there's, you know, something like 20 breakout sessions where you can basically go into different topics and learn from your peers, talk about your experiences. And it's really, really fun. So I ended up going to one on, I don't know, was it premise entrepreneurship? Maybe. Yeah. I think, I think it was starting, starting your own business or uh, taking, you know, taking the content and, and turning it, turning it into a business. So entrepreneurs. Yes. Yes. Uh, led by Jeremy from the Instagram account, Personal Finance Club. And his first topic that he put on the board was, um, pivoting. And I decided to talk a little bit about my story, which was uh, right before the pandemic, I had bought out my partner's half of our house, which was actually more than a half. I had to pay him $80,000 in March of 2020. With the idea that my Airbnb business that I had, I had been running in the basement was going to continue on and, you know, cover my mortgage, which at the time I think was like $2,300. And well, we all know what happened in March of 2020. Not only did the stock market go down, we also had a, you know, global pandemic and my Airbnb went to zero. And so, um, I thankfully was able to pivot really quickly. I did, um, a long-term rental in that basement for 30 days. For a random Airbnb guest. But at that same time, I got a, a message from my really good friend, Mark um, Troutman, who's been on this podcast before. And I feel like we always mention each other. Um, he needed a place to stay for a couple months while his wife was going to get a uh, brain surgery. And so I ended up moving out of my house. The Airbnb guest who was going to be down there for 30 days ended up moving upstairs into a two bedroom. So she got like this awesome upgrade. 
Mark stayed downstairs with his wife and my mortgage was paid um, between the two people. And then I got to move in a month later um, and spend time with them. So I was telling this story and then Chen Chen was right beside me. And so then we started having a quick side convo. Um, and he had also talked about how entrepreneurship for him, when I think it was, you know, more solo entrepreneurship was a really difficult journey. And when he finally found a partner, I think things maybe fell into place a little bit easier, um, especially when it comes to accountability and things like that. And I really connected with that because I do everything alone. And so I was just, so we had a little side combo and I really appreciated his energy and curiosity. Cool. And Chen Chen, how did you end up at Economy? Yeah. So I, like Amberly had mentioned, uh, joined a fintech startup called Nexus. And um, I was one of one of the three co-founders on the team, and one of the one of our biggest sort of goals for this quarter was just to you know get in front of users. Um, we've I have the you know absolute privilege of working with two incredibly brilliant co-founders. Both of them are computer science PhDs, and I joined the team with the mission of all right, we built this awesome product that we think adds a ton of value to people. Um, you know we are on this mission to revolutionize banking, we need to actually now get this product in front of people, get folks to use it, um, get folks to give us feedback and continue to improve and iterate. And one of the ideas of, that we obviously had was, let's go talk to people that are as passionate about personal finance and, and, and bettering and improving personal finance as we are. And came across economy, you know, um, had reached out to Diana, had been really excited about the, you know, the speaker list. Um, and you no, know, did that flight from San Francisco uh, to Cincinnati. Fun fact, there's actually no direct flight from San Francisco to Cincinnati. Or if there is, I haven't found it. And I did a little bit of digging. So I think I routed through Seattle and then landed in Kentucky um, and ended up staying in Kentucky and then taking you know uh, Ubers into Cincinnati proper. But um, yeah, did that long flight and had a blast, honestly. Oh my gosh. You know, I, Emily, I hear you about... Let's do it in the summer. Let's do it, you know, when it's when it's hotter. Uh, let's take our shirts off. Um, but honestly, it was just, it was great to 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 meet with people, um, to to learn from folks in the industry, um, but also just to like, you know, talk about personal finance and talk about fat and talk about you know what can we do with you know, a, you know taking advantage of building wealth. I think this these are just topics that you don't really get to spend seventy two hours ge geeking out over. And oh my gosh, that was a ton of fun. So um, that's how I ended up at Economy, met a ton of really cool people and, um, you know, really excited to, to be a part of it and also obviously to be on this podcast as well. Cool. And then have you been to other five events as well or other um, conferences or part, as part of the marketing? Yeah. So um, my, so I personally, Economy was my first one. Um, my co-founder had been to uh, Camp Fi before and uh we recently bought our tickets to fincon and we're super excited about that um so this short answer first one longer answer super super excited to continue going and uh, selfishly it's a great way to say hey hey guys i'm working uh and you know do so in a different city with with cool people awesome and then so that was your first event were you aware of the FIRE community prior to it? And what was your impression? Yeah, so um, I had a little bit of background. So I uh, went to college at UC Berkeley and graduated and went into management and consulting. Um, I, you know, I was very fortunate to, to have been brought up by immigrant parents. So I was born in China. I moved here when I was three. Um, and one of the core sort of tenants of my upbringing was look we are an immigrant family that gave up a ton to sort of uproot and move thousands and thousands of miles away and we did so to give or my parents did so to give us you know our generation a better future a better education better opportunities and you know financial opportunities were uh, at the forefront of that so from an early on, like from an early stage, you know, sort of the concept of like compound interest and saving for your future and really building wealth was, was ingrained in me because the parents gave up so much to 
optimize for our success. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, part Chinese and we have Lunar New Year every year. And there's this, the habit of giving out red envelopes filled with cash to young, the younger folks and younger generation. Um, and I, it was funny. I barely get, got to touch mine. I, you know, I received it from my parents, opened it up, saw this crisp hundred dollar bill inside and that immediately went into a CD. So it was some, from, from an early on stage, my parents were really, really, you know, you know, they, they made, they held with high importance this idea of, of building wealth. So, um, naturally, I think that spread into you know, the course of my education. Also, after I graduated and, and taking my first paycheck, you know, I was a management consultant. So spreadsheets were everything. We were building models for clients. We were building, you know, DCFs and, you know, a wide variety of financial models, but some of those were personal. And one of the very ones early on was, Hey, what can I do to, you know, buy a house by this time or make sure we're optimizing for wealth building, you know, optimizing for what the market fluctuations look like. So um, in a way, I think I started in the FIRE community with my parents and didn't actually know the acronym and um, recognize that there's this really, really big community until after I graduated. But um, since then, I think, you know, um, a lot of the values that were taught to me are very, very alike, right? Which is, Hey, we should be doing more with our money. We should be building wealth with it. That's, you know, not only the investing isn't only for the rich. It truly is for everyone. Um, and yeah, building for a better future that allows us to, uh, to live, live happy and be productive. Before we, um, that's, that's really great. I think a lot of people don't have models from their parents. A lot of times we have the opposite, right? So it's like, okay, my parents didn't do well. So I actually want to do the opposite and try and grow wealth or learn about it. So that can be some of our motivators. And it's really nice um, for you that you got to have someone to model that behavior. And so I think you can get on the train a lot quicker than other people because you've seen it, you've practiced it your whole life. Um, is there any part of it that made you a bit resentful with, you know, maybe your cash being taken and you didn't get to spend 10% on something fun or like anything that you would kind of look back and do differently? Yeah, really great question. Um, I think as a kid, yes and no. I think the yes part of this is, you know, being surrounded by peers that might, might have had different opportunities or had a more, for, for lack of a better word, relaxed upbringing. So for us, as we were growing up, I think like grades were everything. Um, and along those lines, you know, like discipline, there was a lot of discipline. There was a lot of like, energy and focus. Like it was, it wasn't even a question of whether or not I was going to college, but it was more so like where I was going to college. So I think I wouldn't call this resentment because, you know, at, at the age of 30 now, I like, I absolutely would not have done, you know, had given, been, you know, Got, gotten all these opportunities if we're not for the upbringing that my parents gave. But at the time, if you can imagine, you know, 12 year old me, you know, trying to like pouring through a Best Buy catalog thinking, Oh, wouldn't it be fun if I had, well, what was it back then? I think it was like the GameCube that had just come out and all my friends were getting. And I was like, Oh, I have Chinese New Year money. You know, it's just sitting at, it's sitting in a CD. Like, why can't I use this? You know, buy myself a GameCube and have a really good time. And then for the parents to say, that's not your, that's not your GameCube money. That's your college money. So, um, I think at the time, obviously as a 12 year old kid, you know, like, and I, by the way, mom and dad, if you're listening, it's such a great childhood. I got to go out and play with my, play with my friends and I got video games, even if they weren't the, the coolest ones at the time. Um, but yeah, I think as, as, as a kid, like not recognizing the importance then um, versus, you know, obviously years down the line saying, geez, you, you guys are absolutely right. This is absolutely the, the thing that we should have been doing. So um, not resent. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that word, but um, probably just un lack of understanding at the time. Yeah. And as a kid, you can't see the future like the way your parents can. And as I'm a new parent now and I have to do things to my kid that I'm like, oh, no, you have to go to bed, even though he does not want to. Or like, you can't sleep with me in the bed anymore. You got to go on your own. And you can see that they're just so uncomfortable, but it's the right move. And I can imagine your parents doing that as well, right? It's uncomfortable for them to say no in certain ways. You know, they probably want to give you everything, but they have to make a choice and that's the right choice. And it's really nice that you can look back and think fondly about that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so okay. So one one area that we're maybe jumping ahead a little bit. So you've started some businesses which are kind of risky, right? So entrepreneurship, you have incomplete information, you have to make decisions, it could all fail. You have to keep moving on. Sometimes um with the background that you mentioned, you may have maybe more drive to be an entrepreneur and you're like, okay, like we're going to try this, we're going to work it out. The other side of it is like maybe avoiding risk and taking the safe route, like going to college, getting a good job, working there for a long time. So I don't have a solid question here, but how did you navigate that? Did you have like some strong risk avoidance and you maybe hesitated to start a business or how does risk tolerance come into play? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a really big believer in clean slates and, you know, the sort of like the, the opportunity that a clean slate brings. So, um, I, I graduated college, spent about a year and a half, almost two years at a management consultancy and was in the, actually in the process of, you know, applying to or completing my, the credentials, taking my GMAT and starting the application process into business. And one of the, you know, I was, one of the things that was going on through my head was like, if not now, then when, right? Um, at the time I was 23 years old, I, you know, two years out of college and had always been itching to try and build something for myself or, you know, with someone else, but, um, really, really, you know, take an idea to fruition and, you know, see it all the way through. And I had just spent about a year and a half at a management consultancy where we were going from client to client to client. So we would spend, you know, four weeks with this company, fix one, you know, one part of their problem, completely switch gears and do a couple of weeks with a completely different company and different, different client. And sort of, I was missing the experience of, all right, I just want to sit down, take one idea and spend a ton of time on it, execute on it and take it all the way through. So, you know, I quit my job, was in the process of, you know, ramping up for business school. And I was on a, on a, on a trip in Europe with a good friend of mine, a good colleague of mine. Um, and we were on a boat and we admittedly had a few drinks, probably a few extra. And it was like, the conversation probably sounded like this. It was like, dude, you know what we should do? Dude, what, do you, what, what should we do? It was like, we should open a restaurant. And then it was like the coolest idea in my head of look, like if, all, if everything fails, I could probably still go to business school and have a great time. And, you know, that was the f fully my intention. It was like, we have no idea how to open a restaurant. This is never going to work. But, uh, you know, it was just like, okay, well, we have this clean slate opportunity. If everything fails and I make an absolute fool of myself, it, it hopefully doesn't matter. My, uh, hopefully I don't tarnish my reputation that much and I can still go and, you know, do adult things, whatever that means and go to business school and get a corporate job. Um, long story short, we like, we, we did everything. We learned how to cook. We learned how to run a restaurant and we started off doing pop-ups at local, you know, food events, at wineries, at, you know, like beer halls, um, ended up signing a lease that lease turned into you know, um, you know, like a, a big following that turned into actual restaurant that turned into a second location. Um, and ultimately ended up taking that company through an accelerator program called Y Combinator here in Mountain View. And, um, things just kind of snowball. And I would say for me, it was just really cool that this idea of look, like I had a clean slate to look forward to. So even if I took a bunch of risk and everything crashed and burned, I didn't necessarily think that that was going to be, you know, very detrimental to my, um, I do recognize that that came from an absolute place of privilege, right? Like, I think there's so many things that went into this process that made it um, the perfect storm that allowed me to actually go out and do this. I think, you know, I, at the time was living at home. So I was fortunate, even like, even if everything crashed and burned, I didn't have to pay rent to my parents. You know, there were, <laughs> my parents were split. My mom was like, He's never leaving ever. And my dad was like, I can't wait to get him out of the house. But, um, I'll, you know, also recognize that not everyone's in that position. I right? like there are folks that are providing either from themselves or the, for their families that don't have the ability just to like let go of everything and start something new, but definitely from a place of privilege. But 
yeah, I at the time was relatively risk taking because I knew if things went south, um, there would hopefully be some sort of landing spot and a, a place to, to rebuild. I think that's really cool. And I appreciate you bringing up um, kind of the pillars that were in your life at the time to help you take those risks. Because that was going to be my first question is, you know, what was your living situation? You know, what was, you know, not general, what was your bank account at the time, right? You worked in management consulting for a year. Um, were you in a good place to feel like you could jump? And then it sounded like you had multiple landing slots. You had the, you know, you can go to school, which was the plan. Um, if this, you know, you probably had some sort of time frame. I guess, did you have a time frame um, for how long you would give this business or did it just take off and you never had to think about it much? Yeah, so absolutely had a time frame, um, had runway. So uh, over yeah. the course of taking collecting my first adult paycheck, I had um, put a bunch away. And, you know, that basically constituted us runway. We had assumed that we weren't going to be paying ourselves during, you know, the beginning portions of this. And um, if that continued and started digging into runway, I think that's Mm. when we would have said, look, like, let's pause. Let's let's consider whether or not this is a foreseeable, sustainable career choice and make the adjustment as needed. So um, we got to a point where. Yeah, we started off doing pop-ups and uh, at least in the food business, you know, it's, it is, you can't be profitable if you run quit and eat. So it was at the time myself and, and my one other person and the two of us were just running around doing everything. So you can see us like, mm-hmm. imagine us push, you know, pushing a cart around, picking up at the time, probably like 20 bags of 25 pound bags of cheese at a time and mm-hmm. turning that into mac and cheese and, and essentially doing everything. Like we were able to get back. I think that presented a ton of opportunities for us to like grow and scale and, you know, take the necessary steps of opening up our first place. So, um, we were able to run lean and be profitable and allow us ourselves to continue operating. Um, but there, there was definitely a runway involved, which was if this started dipping too much into our personal capital or got to a place where we couldn't sustain ourselves, um, then we would definitely. I think it's amazing because you know, the restaurant industry is so tough and you guys, did I catch it right? You guys did not have experience in food service? We did not. So my friend Jason, who I opened this restaurant with, um, he had a heightened interest in food, is how I would describe it. <laughs> so neither of us were professionally okay. trained, but yeah. um, Jason had read a cookbook or two. Okay, got it. And then you're good with spreadsheets. So you were like, okay, we just have to make sure we're not losing money the whole time and then scaled from there. Yeah, that's exactly how it looked. We probably still have the the relics of the past, which was assuming X customers at Y rate, you know, with this turnover and this food cost and, you know, the percentage that we're paying out to our, our venue partners, you know, what does that number look like? And we weren't actually worked that off. Um, spreadsheets were, were surprisingly accurate when we were planning and modeling everything up. Uh, that's exactly how we, you know, approached the first events. And I'm going to donate an idea for someone out there that has more energy than me. So same idea, except tater tots, right? Ooh. So build your own tater tots and, you know, it's cheap. You don't have to make the mac and cheese from scratch. You could just buy like pre-made tater tots from Costco or whatever and um, do pop-ups. I think it'll work. Run it lean. I'm all for it. Yeah, love it, Doug. You heard it here first, guys. Doug gets ten percent. Put that into your spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's really good. So I actually want to clarify: you are now working um with two other co-founders for Nexus. You mentioned it's a fintech startup. You're revolutionizing um banking. I think it is, you know, or, or like finances for for people. Can you tell us what does that mean? Like, what are you actually doing and what do you provide customers? Yeah. Um, so we are absolutely revolutionizing banking. And um, I think that the idea really evolved from this problem that, at least here in America, you know, banking is very bank favored. Um, so just painting you a picture, like what happens is, you know, you and I, we have American, you know, bank accounts, American checking accounts. Um, we end up, you know, depositing all this money at the bank uh, to the tune of, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. And banks are in the business of taking that money, 
and earning returns and profits for themselves. So they go out and they loan it to other folks. They invest it into the market. And whatever numbers comes, you know, from that, which is usually a relatively high number, um, they keep for you know themselves, pay their execs, you know, pay their show- shareholders. Um, and we questioned, you know, why was this the case, right? This is our hard-earned money. Um, you know, money builds money and money grows wealth. Why can't we, you know, take not only the bulk of the returns and the profits, but all of it for ourselves with our money? And that's how Nexus was born. So um, Nexus is a product with the idea that, you know, your bank account should be building wealth and earning for you, not for banks. And how we actually do that is, is quite cool. So uh, when you open a Nexus account, we set you up with both a checking account and a brokerage account. And you, you keep your balance with us. So let's say you have $10,000 in balance um, and use us as you would any normal checking account. So we give you full liquidity to your cash. Um, you know, you pay your bills, get paid, you know, through a direct deposit, use any ATMs. Um, by the way, we, you know, ATMs are always free with us. So use any ATM in the world um, and we'll reimburse you for that cost. Um, so use us as you would a traditional checking account, but your funds are actually sitting in, you know, long-term diversified funds. Um, you get to choose which funds you want to invest your money in from, you know, lower risk like U.S. treasuries backed by the, the credit of the U.S. government or, you know, stock, you know, stock funds. Um, and all that, your entire balance is working and earning returns for you. So we are simply the custodians of your cash. Um, we don't, you know, collateralize or, you know, group all of our deposits and then invest that to earn returns for ourselves. We really keep those returns for our customers. So, um, yeah, it's just really, we, Nexus was born on this belief that banking should be people favored. It is inherently a people product. Money belongs to people, and therefore the returns and the profits that come with that uh, should be directed to people as well. I love that. In Canada, um, we every bank account that I know has a fee associated it with it. So, like in the US, I feel like they've gotten rid of fees, which is nice. But in Canada, it's like fifteen dollars a month for people to have a bank account here, which is just basically you are now paying the bank for them to take your money and make money off of it. And it's just this crazy thing that you have here. You also cannot freeze your credit score um, here. So you cannot, you know, put a, put a freeze with Equifax and TransUnion and uh, those companies up here. And so I find, um, though I have some issues with the U.S. sometimes with banking, at least those pizzas are a little bit more user friendly. Um, and the one thing with Canada is we do adopt, um, you know, like the, the tap and the chip much sooner than other and then the U.S. in general. Um, so it's it's a trade-off, I guess, for security, but then you are paying these banks. And um, so I really like this concept. So I have a question for you. Um, this is a question because this comes up in my FinTalks group a lot. We travel. So all of us love to go travel internationally. We love cards that do not have ATM fees because you're not paying that 350 every time you're somewhere and you don't have to carry cash. So a lot of us move towards the Charles Schwab um, card because those international fees, uh, the conversion is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go to an ATM, when you said you can use uh, the card around the world, do you have, how do you set that um, conversion fee and do you have favorable conversion fees? And I'm asking this because I totally want to tell everyone about this, uh, if it's favorable. Yeah, so we do. Um, we, we're on the MasterCard network. So um, our negotiated rates with MasterCard are, you know, we don't have any foreign transaction fees. And okay. um, when you, we th- you know, this was a travel tip that, you know, I learned early on too, which was like, in, if you ever need local currency, you are going to get better conversion rates if you are behaving like a local, right? And locals would go to an ATM and withdraw cash versus, you know, Forex or those, those really, I would say predatory airport and like local, you know, exchange places. Um, so yes, to answer your question directly, we have, you know, there's no foreign transaction fees and we have uh, any, the conversion rates as negotiated by the MasterCard network, um, which last we've tracked are pretty good. Yeah. And um, that's great to know because we always do a travel, whether it's like, oh, global um, arbitrage or geo arbitrage um, or like travel tips or credit card mm-hmm. hacking and the Charles Schwab card. It comes up every single time. So I would love to recommend something different uh, and some like people who are part of our community. So that's great. 
Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, um, tell me a little bit more. So you started a mac and cheese business, right? So you're in the food service industry, which um, I used to work in foods. I had my own company um, doing like what HelloFresh used to do. But um, like you said, your projections are pretty on par because you can kind of decide um, how many customers you can get in front of customers by being at some sort of farmer's market or like pop-up events, like you said. You can say, hey, I need to sell it for this amount because this is the ingredients that go into it and I need a little bit of overhead of however percent or to pay us, right? So it's a bit more of um, a model that you can kind of understand. Tell me more about being in FinTech and what's that runway look like now? How do you get funding? And this is a much bigger product. You're working with computer science, um, your co-founders who, who are, you know, PhDs in computer science. I think you said that. Um, tell me a little bit about the difference in the, the companies and how that, like what that means for you. Yeah, night and day from an operational standpoint. So previously, you know, fire drills were like, Sometimes literal fire drills, right? It was, hey, something went down at the at the restaurant. We need we need to come fix it. Um, yeah. Now fire drills. Well, I guess they're actually pretty similar too. Now fire drills are something went down from a server standpoint, or you know something technical went down, and you know lo and behold, we need we need someone to come fix it. So um, I would say night and day from what the products actually are. But in terms of, I think, my role and the work that's being done, there, there are a ton of similarities. I think on the food side, um, it was about building a brand, right? Like we had built this mac and cheese brand that people trusted, that people were you know, engaging with time and time again. They had expectations of us and we had to deliver on those expectations. Um, I think it's very similar with the product that we're working on right now, which is our customers engage with us time and time again. They have expectations of us as well. They, you know, they expect everything to work they you know you know we are we're regulated by the sec so um we have to be good faith actors and we have to you know we can't you know you know mislead or misconstrue any of the information that we provide um you know on the food side similarly we like our local health department would you know, shut us down if we were doing things and being bad faith actors as well so in the ways that i think they're very similar from a brand building and building trust with our customer side um but the product itself obviously night and day difference. Um, but I would say that I, I took a lot of the learnings that I had from working in and I think applied it one-to-one here and am continuing to learn and grow in this role as well. So um, on the food side, you know, engaging and getting feedback with, with our customers was really big. We loved hearing about what, what we could have done better. We loved, you know, maintaining our Yelp page for better or for worse. Um, engaging and, and talking to people one-on-one. And I think we do a ton of that here now as well, which is you know, what can we build to make the product better or make your personal finances easier or you know, just continue to improve and iterate. And I think taking a lot of that mindset has, you know, like it's, it's been super helpful having built a company and a brand from scratch and taking all those learnings into my current role here. Yeah, with the different types of business, I do want to talk about mindset. You just said it. I was like, oh, yeah, this is one of my my list of questions. Did you find that you had to change your mindset from going to a food service business to maybe something that you're less familiar with or um, yeah, you don't have as much expertise? Is there something that had to shift inside of you to be more successful in this field now? Definitely. I think definitely a lot of learnings and understanding sort of the the customer cycle um, and the differences as it relates to fintech products. And so with food, I think the customer cycle is quite simple. It's, you know, people need to eat three times a day. How can you become one of their choices, one of those three times? And then people, you know, eat every day. So, you know, you there's a lot of opportunities to get a customer in through the door and, you know, engage with them and sell them your product. In the fintech world, that is, you know, completely different, right? Like folks only have so many banking products. There are only so many ways you can get in front of customers. And, you know, it takes a really, it takes a lot of work and a lot of trust to be able to convert someone into a product that, you know, you only make this decision maybe once, some, for some people once in their lifetime, right? They open up their bank account and they never leave it. So I think the product cycle is completely different where we, the mind, we now have a mindset shift up. There's so much more we need to do and so much more trust we need to build with potential customers to get them to try our product out. Whereas with food, 
you literally had a thousand on-ramps over the course of a year to convince someone to walk in through your store and give you a try. So I think that was a really big mind, mind, mindset change. And honestly, for the better, right? Like we spend our day every day obsessing over what can we do to continue to build trust? What can we do to prove and overprove and over deliver on our promises so, so that folks can entrust us with very sensitive information and, you know, very sensitive parts of their lives, like their, their finances. So, um, I think that was a really, really big mind, mind shift change as well. Um, I think what stayed the same was, you know, sort of people's reluctance to give you a second try after you've messed up. I think in the food world, it's like you could, you can serve a hundred thousand good meals, but if you serve one bad one and just happen to get, you know, a customer, um, that was having a bad day and they had a bad experience with you, they are never going to come back. So sim- similarly in the fintech world too, is we absolutely need to put our best face forward at all times because I think one bad experience is, especially with something as personal and sensitive as finances, um, you know, you just completely lose trust and it's, it's so easy to lose a customer there as well. Do you think that internally building trust within your own team helps to like create that culture with trust with your customers and tell me about, you know, choosing co-founders or employees? Yeah, um, that was probably the biggest reason that I joined Stefan and Constantine, my co-founders on this project. So um, I had gone through this incubator program called Y Combinator based, based out of Silicon Valley here. And, um, was, had went through with my previous company and ended up selling off, sell, selling that company off. Um, and it went through as I, you know, took a little bit of time off to think about what I wanted to do next. Um, went through this co-founding, co-founder matching network put on by Y Combinator. So, um, it's a really cool network. What they do is they do their best to match people that have ideas or have projects that they're working on with people that are, you know, hungry and looking for projects. And throughout the course of this experience met with, probably 50 different people or groups of people to learn about what they were working on. And Stefan and Constantine really, really stood out. And I think the biggest part of that was um, just from listening to their vision and listening to how they approach problem solving, um, I just had this innate sense that they were just good faith actors who cared and obsessed over building a good product. So um, I think that was just from day one, uh, knowing that there was a ton of trust that the two of them had built with each other and also knowing that that was going to be the biggest priority in finding a third co-founder and also in the product that they're building. So um, I was incredibly drawn to what they've built, incredibly drawn to some of like their, you know, like North Star, North Star visions of where they wanted to take this. And the biggest part of that was, look, like we are going to be dealing with people's finances. Above all, we need to be good faith actors in every, every aspect of the word. So whether that being, you know, very truthful and honest marketing or, you know, delivering on promises that we make to our customers or building things with a very customer centric point in mind. Um, I got all of that over the course of meeting with them. And ultimately it was the biggest factor in joining the team and, um, haven't looked back since. When That's did you awesome. join? It's really. Yeah, I joined at the end of last year. Got it. Now, how big is the team currently? The team is three people. So you guys are looking at one third of it and Stefan and Constantine are the other two. Um, yeah, three people. On a personal level, so you guys, you know, you have these, like, I guess, like moral foundations for your company, right? Being good faith actors in the in the. Um, the place you play, right? So in the fintech world, making sure that you build trust with your customers, you um, go above and beyond, I'm sure, to fix issues and things like that. What from a personal perspective, like limiting beliefs that you all three have either for your company and or for yourselves that you've had to overcome or you're currently overcoming? So not necessarily like, oh, is it a customer journey or whatever, like your actual personal limitations that you like in your mind? Um, that you need to figure out to be successful. Yeah, I think there is a lot of like, what is it like imposter syndrome that goes on when, when, you know, starting, starting something and building something. I think, you know, like this is what year, 
year eight in working for myself or, you know, in, in entrepreneurship. And I think that still is prevalent, right? It's like, what are we doing? Are we the right people to be tackling this? Like there are 6 billion people on this, in this world. Why are the three of us uniquely solving, trying to solve this problem where 6 billion people haven't and maybe have tried and failed? So there's a lot of that, like, oh, am I the right person to do this? And I think that was uh, a personal thing that like I still struggle with sometimes, right? Like, we can have we can have a bad day where you know we run into a roadblock and just have some of these like insecurities creep up of okay if I were someone else would I have already solved this by now right or like you know and a, a customer is frustrated that like you know like like a customer is frustrated with like a, a check problem or something like that like oh why couldn't we have done this better in the first place so I think from a look like this is a very complex problem to solve why haven't Billions and billions of people already presented itself and presented a, a solid solution. I think there's a little bit of weight of that that at least I personally continue to carry whenever we're trying to tackle these really big problems. Um, but that I said, I think you know, I, again, very fortunate to found a team that I align with that you know have people's best interests in mind that I have absolutely no qualms with in terms of building the right product here and. I think this also goes to show like sort of like the difference of where I am now versus where I was about a year ago. So about a year ago, I was, you know, the solo founder or the, the solo sort of exec in charge of this company. How I was in food service. Um, there was a lot of things that needed to be done. We were on this tail end of a pandemic and like, you know, honestly was burnt out and um, was recognizing that I was working for myself. But um, at the same time, I wasn't really be, being held accountable by anyone else but myself. So it was really easy for me to say, look, like, cool, if I don't do this thing, you know, who's really going to care, right? Or, uh, you know, the, here's the list of, you know, five or 10 to-dos that I need to get done today. But if I didn't do them and I just rolled them over into tomorrow, like nothing much is going to fundamentally change because there's actually not, you know, someone, you know, checking these off in my, in, on my bucket list or in my head. Um, I think that's like night and day different now too. Whereas like working with Stefan and Constantine, um, if I tell them that I'm going to do something, I, I am going to do it. I'm going to go above and beyond and getting that, getting that thing done because these are folks that are trusting me to, you know, drive and move forward in a similar way that look like if, if I'm trusting them to do something, um, with regards to the company, uh, I better hope that they deliver as well. And I think having some of that accountability with regards to this team mindset has been incredibly positive too. So Amberly, I have a question for you. So you work solo. How do you deal with that accountability? Should I pull up my to-do list? That's been going for like three months now. <laughs> I was going to say, I run it that way too. I love kicking it to the next day or next week. I was yeah. like, that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, I think that's number one. I just, I really connect. Um, the reason I asked the question is because I learned when I started my first business, I actually packed it up, closed it so that I could go to school to learn entrepreneurship. So I ended up at CU Boulder, um, their business school studying strategy and entrepreneurship and their business school um, at Leeds. And I realized the number one thing I realized during that time, there was a bunch of things that was great for me to go to university finally and help me with my self-esteem and other things and realize how organized I was and get things done. But the thing I realized is that everyone is just like faking it till they make it. And that imposter syndrome, every person feels. And when you ask the question, are you, why are you uniquely qualified to do this? Sometimes that answer is you're the only person who's actually taking action. And that to me is like something that I didn't know when I was working through my first company all by myself as like a 23 year old. I think I was 22 actually at the time. Um, I started my first company at 21 and then 22, another one, um, after I moved back to the U.S. So I, I really connect to that imposter syndrome and trying to get things done on my own. And um, the, the true answer, Doug, is that I hired someone to keep me accountable. So I have someone who like literally is like, text, she texted me two days ago. I was like, Amberly, we need content. We are running out. Like, like get your ass together and film some shit. So that's my job today in the afternoon is to do that because if I don't, she's going to text me again and be like, we don't have anything. Instagram is going to hate us. Like, let's do this. So I had to start paying someone um, to help me with this because I'm still like a solo venture in this. 
Um, but that imposter syndrome, I don't know if it ever goes away. You just take on more things and then you get like bigger and better at the things you were doing. So you feel good about those. And then you take on more because the type of personality that goes into entrepreneurship is always looking for that like next venture. They're looking for like the problems to solve in the world. They're looking for community and building something. And I think all of that comes with challenges that you just like you're constantly learning and changing and doing. And yeah, it never stops. So we're starting to come up towards the end here. And Chen Chen, I want to ask you something. So we talked about the traditional, you know, banking industry, which I think we could all agree kind of sucks. I, I don't like banks that much. How does Nexus make money? Yeah, great question. So we make money two ways. One on something called interchange. So um, what happens, you know, like let's say you, Doug, use your Nexus debit card and you buy 50 bucks worth of groceries at your local grocery store. Um, the local grocery store is going to char- be charged a few percent, maybe one or two percent on that transaction from a few different people, you know, the card issuer and then from us as well. So we capture a, a portion of that transaction on the vendor side. So, oh, by the way, both of these methods aren't actually costs to you, the customer. Um, they are just part of the daily transaction. So that's the first side on um, the card interchange. On And then number two on something called payment of order flow. And what that means is because we buy and sell securities for you and these securities that are, you know, earning returns, building wealth, um, every time we buy or sell security, the price that you see on the market isn't necessarily the price that the brokerage sees. And there's always like this minute difference where markets are constantly fluctuating, prices are going up and down. Um, and this happens with any brokerage, right? If you buy a $50 stock on Robinhood, you might buy it for $50, but Robinhood is able to get it because they're a brokerage for like $49.99. So um, we capture that uh, as well as part of revenue. So these are the two ways that we currently make money. Um, none of it actually is impacting the customer side. And this was by design. Like we didn't want to charge minimum balance fees or overdraft fees or, you know, charge you to use an out of network ATM or all these other, you know, fees that add up to billions and billions of dollars a year because we, we truly wanted to build a product that was like, look, we just want to bank and we want our money to earn for us. How can we do this in a way that so allows us to sustain our operations? Lasso on that. Um, banks are kind, banks are kind of archaic. I think like banks evolved. And started because there was a need for people to keep money safe, right? Like, you know, you, it was at, you know, it was un- very unsafe to keep like hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever currency was at the time under your mattress and have something happen to us. There was a need for the centralized place with people and, and the, uh, this function of keeping your money safe. And all that came with cost. I think what has happened is over, you know, the course of hundreds of years is that technology and that piece has changed. It is now possible, you know, digitally to keep money safe without the need for, you know, big vaults and tellers. And of course, like folks are, a lot of people are still going to be analog and do that. But the, the, what's, what's been required to, you know, open and start a bank and its core functions have changed a lot. And along with that, the costs of running it. So. Um, it doesn't cost as much to keep money safe, right? It doesn't cost as much to maintain transactions and allow people to go about their day-to-day lives. But banks are so hesitant to change some of their monetization models because there's just no reason for doing so. People have been used to paying these fees. People have been used to getting 0.03% APY on their checking accounts. And unless, you know, if there's no impetus and people asking for more, I think banks are perfectly happy still collecting those fees making that money for themselves and earning returns for themselves. So I think we are part of this, I think, new push of look, like people should deserve more and, you know, deserve better from their banking product. And until I think more and more people, you know, sign on board or recognize that there's a ton more opportunity out there, I think like traditional banks are more than happy to continue going about their merry way and um, really hasn't failed them much since. So follow-up question. And then we'll we'll wrap up. I know we have we all have other stuff to go to here. So for people that might have an objection, I'm sure this is something that comes up often. 
let's say I want to switch banks. I'm I'm in the market for a new bank. I'm looking, I see Nexus, but then I find out it's just these three dudes that started a company. And I'm like, I don't know if I should give them my money. It all sounds good, but it seems risky. So how do you answer that? Yeah. Um, well, I would say first and foremost, like I think the US is in like it's it's you know in a good place in the sense that anything that touches money or is a financial product is regulated and is heavily regulated. So um in order for us to even get certain licenses or be able to like open certain accounts and and be able to ingest money to manage, um, you know, we had to go through months and months of training, of license applications, of testing. So it, we we are we are three dudes, but we're three dudes with a I would say a repertoire of licenses and everything that's regulated by the SEC. And of course, that's meant for customer production. Of course, like that is absolutely the right way to, to go about doing that. So um, we come with like months and months of training and months and months of you know getting really getting our ducks in a row so we can legally and you know like in a fiscally responsible way do what we do. Um, in terms of insurance, you know, any cash that you carry with us is uh, FDIC insured. Anything that you carry with us in the brokerage side is SIPC insured, which a fancy way of saying we can't just run away with your money. And even if we default, all your securities are are protected. Um, SIP insurance doesn't protect against market losses, but it does protect against, you know, three dudes building this product that ultimately fails. You know, that's what SIPC insurance is for. And every dollar that you keep with us. Um, is that SIPC insured. So from a regulatory and insurance side, uh, we make sure to get as many safeguards as possible. Um, now, I think from like a product building side, I think it's honestly, like this is part of my day-to-day, right? Like how can we continue to build trust, trust with people? Um, I think the biggest part is like, look, like we are three dudes that have um, a ton of passion for this space. And we you know, love talking with people and listening to our customers. And above that, we love building what our customers want. So part of this too is like our initial wave of folks have been telling us what to build or like what they need from 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 their banking product. You know, one person said, hey, look, like I want to be able to, you know, you know, send a check, like send a recurring check directly from my phone and not have like, I don't want to write checks to my landlord anymore. So we built that feature or Someone was like, okay, well, every other bank has like a mobile check deposit feature. Can you guys build that too? And we built that as well. So from a building trust perspective and also like why, you know, you should consider working with us. One of the biggest things is like, we love listening to our customers and we love like building things that really make a difference in their lives and, and things that people want. So um, honestly, if you, you're like, hey, I just want to tell a company what to do because that, <laughs> I think that's just going to make my life better. Like we're all for that and we'll listen to you. Awesome. This has been really exciting to chat with you today. So where can people find more and maybe follow along with you? Sure. Um, we, you can find us on our website, uh, nexushq.com. That's, um, you know, uh, if you w- want to sign up through there, um, we're also available on both the iOS and Google Play stores as well. So uh, Nexus Bank uh, will get you there too. Um, yeah, I'm personally on TikTok, CC from Nexus. And, um, and you know, we will be in you know other fintech news and continuing to grow and, and getting our product in front of people. So um, feel free to reach out directly with any questions as well. Awesome. We'll link up to all that stuff and I'll see you in uh, New Orleans, I guess, for uh, FinCon. Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast and I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host. And Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, 
and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week.